0: Hello and welcome to the Second Chapter Podcast. This is season 9 of the Second Chapter, and I am back with more brilliant and inspiring women who have changed their lives and or their careers after 35. If you don't already know, I'm your host Kristen Duffy, and I've had my fair share of changes myself, so it's a subject that's close to my heart. This week I'm speaking with Jen Swink. Widowed in a brutal fashion at 35, Jen took some unusual steps to start her second chapter steps that included moving with her two-year-old to a small Caribbean island. Now Jen has found her why through working with other widows to come together, learn some new ways to travel the path through grief, and uplift each other on the journey to rediscovering a new life after loss. This episode of the second chapter does contain descriptions of grief and loss that some listeners might find distressing. However, Jen's story is ultimately one of hope and living again.
1: Who would have thought And you just look back and it's, this is not the life that I thought I would be living, but I can say from the deepest part of my heart, I am so happy. I am so happy.
0: Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for joining me on the second chapter. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you for having me today.
0: Uh, Not everyone can see you because I don't always put out the video, but your glasses are amazing. I'm going to start
1: with that This is my accessory of the day. Yes, I switch it up a lot. I I might have to put out pictures of us
0: chatting because we have our matching (laughs) headphones and you have your fabulous (laughs) glasses that somehow coordinate with my background, which is a weird piece of fabric I have. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we're on the same colorful vibe today. (laughs) I
1: know, it's funny.
0: Your story of change is quite different than a lot of guests that I have on the podcast. I feel like it didn't have as much to do with choice and some of the midlife changes I often talk about. So I'm going to go back in time a little bit with you, if that's okay. And I would like to know about how you started dating or your history with your first husband, Brent.
1: Well, we actually met in optometry school and I am originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. And optometry school was in Memphis. It was our third year of optometry school. So this must've been the year 2000, a while ago. And we had a big group that came down for Mardi Gras weekend and Brent came down. There's probably 20 students from our class came down and everyone stayed at my parents' house, which was pretty crazy. (laughs) And, And then the weekend ended. We all were driving back up to Memphis and Brenton didn't have a ride up to school. He had gotten a ride with some people. They had left a little earlier. He stayed. He needed a ride back. And so I offered him a ride and that was about a six hour drive. And we spent the whole time talking. And I guess it was one of those when Harry met Sally kind of moments, right? Didn't they ride in the car together? <laughs> I think
0: you're um, right. I haven't seen that film did. in a long time, but it's a good one. I'm going to have to go back. <laughs>
1: Apartment, I said, I don't want to drop him off. Like we're having a good time talking, and we want to continue this. And he felt the same way. So we ended up going on a first date. I think it was just the week after, and then we were together. After that, we were inseparable. We got engaged a couple of years later. Got married in 2004, and and then moved to Louisiana so we could both start our careers as optometrists in Louisiana. And you had a daughter. Yes, we have one daughter and she she came along. We had a couple of years to ourselves and then she came into the picture in 2009. So we were just getting established, starting our lives and starting our careers really still. And on this path to have this wonderful, normal, (laughs) suburban life together, you know, we were loving life. We we're just. We had a good time. We were happy. We were really in a good place. It's interesting
0: when life changes so much, but when you think about saying we just had this really happy, normal life, because then you you start thinking we take for granted like what normal life is and how to be married with a two year old and starting your careers and it's just it's a nice existence that we take for granted sometimes.
1: Yes, I know. I look back at myself in those couple of years. And I was just this happy-go-lucky, innocent, nothing bad ever happens to us kind of life. That's how I looked at myself. We were normal, normal,
0: (laughs) normal. air quotes. Yes. Normal. (laughs) And in 2011, everything changed.
1: Yes. So Brent was invited to a bachelor party and this was October of 2011. And he was a guy who never went out. He was such a homebody and he just loved being home with his girls, but it was a group of guys and they were going out in the French quarter. And I said, go have a good time. Just enjoy yourself and have fun with the guys. Cause he never did it. He never went out. So he did. He decided he was going to go. He was going to stay down there Saturday night and then come back Sunday morning And so when he left the house, it was just like a quick, Hey, how do I look? Do I look okay? Yes. You look great. Have a good time. Kiss. Bye. And then he called me on the way. So he got in the car and he drove, it's about a 35, 40 minute drive. And we talked on the phone the whole time until he got there. And I was really thankful for that. Looking back on that conversation because he went to the party, he went out. He was going to text me at whatever time it was he got back to the hotel. Claire and I were home. She's two. We just went to sleep and I didn't think anything of it. I think I woke up at about 30, 5 o'clock and went to check my phone and there was no text message. So I just said, he's probably still out or he's, he had a lot to drink. He probably just forgot. So the next day, so Sunday morning, he's, he was supposed to come home, still no text message. And it got to be like 10 o'clock, still nothing. And he was going to be home for, to watch the Saints football game. And that started at noon. So then the game starts and he still wasn't home. And I still hadn't heard from him so that by this point I'm, I was getting a little nervous, but I've contacted the guys and I said, Hey, are you guys out at breakfast? What's going on? And they said, no, we haven't seen him since last night. He left the bar at about four 30. He gave him a wave and he was like, I'm done. I'm tired. I want to go. So he left the bar by himself. Our friend, this guy, he went to check the hotel room and he wasn't there. And he said, it doesn't look like he came home. He didn't come into this room. His stuff is still all sitting. The bed is made. So he said, he never came home. I'm going to call the police. He's like, drop off the baby at your parents' house. And I said, what are you talking about? Call the police. Okay. So by this time it's one o'clock in the afternoon. And I called my parents and told them what was happening. And my dad came with me. He said, he, you know, keep the baby at mom's. And so she was with my mom and my dad came with me downtown. I grabbed a couple of pictures of Brent just so I could show the police. And then we just started retracing steps and the police got involved. And Did did they take this seriously at
0: this point or was it, oh, this happens, people come down and get drunk or were they really on top of it?
1: They did. The police, they had, I think it was like two or three officers and then plus our friends. Everybody was going from the bar that they had left and walking all around and trying to talk to the bartenders and get video footage. It was on Bourbon street. So there's video cameras and there's footage. So yeah, we did that for several hours coming up with nothing. And we decided we were trying to track his cell phone. So we had to jump through some hoops with that because there's privacy laws and Mm -hmm. things like that. So they weren't just giving out information, but we were trying to track his phone. And finally we were able to do that at about eight o'clock at night. So by this time it's dark. And we track the phone to a junkyard that's probably three miles from the last place that he was seen at this bar, a little bit outside of the French Quarter. The police are there. There's three or four cop cars. And we all head over to this junkyard. And we get there. And it's Sunday night. So it's pitch dark. It's nine o'clock at night. They couldn't get in touch with the owner. We couldn't get into the junkyard. But there was a barbed wire fence all across the top. There's like Rottweilers and pit bulls barking underneath the fence. And I'm thinking, he in there? His phone is in there. The police called the fire department and the fire department came out with the fire truck with the big ladder that goes up. So they put the ladder up on an angle and they had two firemen at the top. And what they were doing was they were shining a big spotlight down in there trying to look for him. And then they would tell me, they would say, "Okay, Jen, we want you to call his phone. We're going to shut off the lights and see if we can see it lighting up in the junkyard." And so we kept doing that, and they would shut off the lights. They say, "Call again," and we did that for an hour, maybe something like that. And by this time, there were detectives there with the black cars and the black suits. <laughs> it must have been about eleven o'clock, maybe, and people started leaving, and the fire department started leaving, and everyone started leaving. And then this detective came up to me and said, okay, ma'am, we just need you to go home and try and get some rest and just let us do our job. And I was like, what does that even really mean? really just say that to me? Cause I said, I'm not leaving here. I said, I don't have my husband. I'm not leaving. Why is everybody leaving? What is happening? Yeah. Otherworldly out of body experience really. And my dad was like, we should just go. We got to go. Everybody's leaving. There's nothing we can do. This was at about midnight or something. And so I, we left, went back to my parents' house. Now, of course, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't going to sleep. I was panicking, just pure panic. Claire was in the back bedroom. My mom had set up a little nightlight in the bedroom for her. So I walk back there and I climb the bed with her and I'm just sitting in the bed and I'm looking over at her. And then I just started talking to Brent and I said, you got to give me a sign. You got to give me a sign. Tell me that you're okay. Just let me know that you're okay. And there was a shadow on the wall in front of me from the little nightlight. And it was casting a shadow off of something on the dresser. I don't know what it was, but the shadow was a silhouette of Brent standing. Like I could see his silhouette. And so I looked at it and then I said, no, no, I didn't see that. Give me another sign. I need another sign. That's just telling me that you're okay. I need to know that you're okay. I just kept saying it over and over again. Yeah. And then I looked back over at it and it was him. It was his silhouette on the wall, just full body silhouette. And I just said, okay, that's it. Like I knew that he was gone. I knew that he was no longer year and I didn't want to believe it. You know, my 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 heart was trying to accept it, but then my head was just like, no, he's got to be in jail. He maybe he ran off with somebody. I said anything but what is happening. And so of course I didn't sleep at all. And then the next day we got a call eight o'clock in the morning that Told us to come down to the coroner's office and and that they wanted to talk to us about Brent. So what happened was Brent had left the the party, the bar, and the hotel was two blocks to the right, and he had taken a left turn. And I think it's just because he had some drinks and he got confused and he turned left instead of turning right. And when he walked out of the bar, he was followed by a guy and he took this one turn. He was literally like a block away from the bar, but he took a turn down a dark street. And um, this person came up behind him and hit him on the head, took his wallet, took his phone. So he had no identification, no way of anybody knowing who he is or being able to contact me, which is why he was missing for some time. But someone found him. They were walking down the sidewalk and found him on the sidewalk and called 911 and he was pronounced dead. I mean he was pretty much dead like immediately. So they didn't have to take him and go work on him or anything like that. It was yeah. just pretty much right away from what I was told. So yeah, that was when the 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 nightmare The nightmare had already begun, but it just continued to get worse. Um, Was it something that there was ever the chance of closure? Was there someone to prosecute? Yes. So the detectives that were, they were amazing. They really were amazing. They ended up finding this person. So it took a couple of weeks, but they were interviewing, getting witnesses, all the footage that they had, everything. And the person that did this, they ended up leaving the city. They went up to go and hide with relatives in Missouri, but their relatives turned them in. So this was probably two or three weeks later was when they actually, so they found him, brought him back to New Orleans. And then we had to start the whole business of trial and giving, getting evidence and was a trial going to happen and how, how I was going to Be able to handle that part of it emotionally because there's the loss of my husband, but then there's, it's this brutal violence that I have never dealt with in my life. I have never been exposed to anything that horrific in my life.
0: I said at the beginning, this wasn't the typical change story, but here you are 35 years old. It's not like deciding you're not happy in your career. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it is divorce or a friend dying or someone dying, but this is not just even a partner dying. It's a partner dying in such a brutal way. You have to go through a trial. Where do you start? (laughs) That's such a vague question, but I'm sure it was a huge world. Suddenly nothing was the same at a two-year-old.
1: Yes. I'm I'm Two year old, and having to navigate that part of it, also, what to expose her to at such a young age. And all of a sudden, her dad is no longer here. There were so many hearts coming at me that I was trying to deal with. It was very overwhelming, overwhelming. And there's the day to day of just getting through life. I still have to cook dinner. I still have to, I still have to give her a bath. You know, I'm the only parent here. Yeah. So it was so much, it was so much to have to think about and to deal with the end result. What happened with the trial we had from day one, we had offered a plea deal and they didn't take it. So we would have trial dates set and then they needed more evidence. So then the trial date would get postponed and then they would track down another witness and then the trial date would get postponed. And then we were trying to get all of the ducks in the row for that. And that went on for four years.
0: Oh my God. You don't need that reminder every day. Not that you don't have reminders in every part of your life, but then to never have, like I mentioned the word closure, but like it just keeps getting put off
1: every few months. That was my life for every few months was building up to a trial and having to face this person and what's the outcome going to be? Worrying about all of these different parts of it and how I was going to hold up mentally, (laughs) really. I was a nervous wreck. I was. And then four years later, four years, they accepted the plea deal. So we did not have to go to trial. And so there was a second degree murder charge and jail time of 40 years. There has to be a part of you that's like,
0: couldn't you have just done that at the beginning? And because it wasn't bad enough that someone killed your husband, but the fact that they couldn't just say, yeah, we'll take the deal. And I'm sure there was lots of lawyers involved and the just all of it for you. What a nightmare, putting it very mildly. Yeah. So you ended up on a Caribbean island. (laughs) I
1: did. How did that happen? Um, the first week after Brent was killed, of course, I had all of these plans, funeral plans, family in town, all of that happening. The second week, everybody's going back to their normal life. The two weeks after Brent was killed, my mom said, let's go meet for lunch. She said, let's meet at this McDonald's. I have to go and run some errands, come and meet me. And I had Claire. So I said, okay, I'm. we'll come and meet you. I'm still in a daze. It's two weeks later. The funeral was the week before this. So I met my mom at this McDonald's in this teeny tiny town. It's a suburb close to where my parents live outside of the city. And I'm sitting in the McDonald's. We had gotten our food. My mom got up to bring Claire to the bathroom. We were still potty training her, which all got blown to hell. But we were still trying to (laughs) in the middle of potty training. So she takes her to the bathroom. And then I could hear behind the counter that the workers were talking and their voices were getting louder. And I said, Something's going on over here. And then I heard one of them say, Oh, he's coming this way. He's coming this way. And then right outside the window on this side of me, this cop car pulls up, like screeches. The cop jumps out and he's got a gun in his hand. He runs into the bathroom, into the men's bathroom, and then comes back out a couple of seconds later. Has the gun, jumps in his car, and then screeches away. And I'm just sitting there watching this and eating my french fries. I'm looking around. Just does anybody else see what is happening? So my mom comes walking out of the bathroom with Claire. And my mom says, Guess who just went to potty? Like, just all oblivious to what is (laughs) happening. And I hear, The people behind the counter, they said the bank across the street was just robbed. And this person was running across to the McDonald's to go and hide somewhere around the McDonald's. And when I tell you this is like little sleepy town suburb and nothing bad happens. Okay. And this was, again, violence in my face and just (laughs) enclosing on me. And I felt suddenly, you know just suffocated by violence and these things. And I just, I lost it. I lost it. I started hyperventilating and my mom was like, what's going on? What's happening? And so I told her what happened. And so she took me outside and I just, I said, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with any of this that is happening. This was all within two weeks of him. And I said, I have to leave here. I have to go. I I don't know where I'm going, but I have to go. So I went home and I booked us two tickets to go to Providencialis. It's in the Turks and Caicos Islands. And that was our vacation spot. Brent and I used to go there two or three times a year. That was our happy place. And it's very quiet and peaceful and beautiful And I just felt this pull to go there. I said, I have to go. I just need some quiet. I need some peace. I don't need any of this, what is happening. And I booked it for Thanksgiving because I didn't want to be home for Thanksgiving. I didn't want to try to do the normal things and pretend like everything was normal. And it wasn't. So I was going to go for 10 days and I went for Thanksgiving week. My dear, sweet friend from college, she came with us. She met us in Miami and then we flew down there together and she said, I'm going to come and stay with you. And if you want to go walk on the beach, you do that. I'm going to watch Claire. I'm here for you, whatever you need. If you just want to go sit down on the beach and do whatever. So she was there with us for a week. And then Claire and I were there for an extra few days after, but it was by the second day I told my friend, I think I want to live here. And she said, okay, let's see if we can make that happen. That's a good friend because I do feel like a lot of people would be like, you've lost your
0: mind. You can't just run away. Before we started recording, I was saying, I do not have a good basis of comparison, but after a terrible divorce for me, I was like, I want to move. I want to go somewhere else. And I feel like so many people, if I would have packed up my bags and said, I'm going, I want to live in the Caribbean, they would have been like, no. So to have a friend that's, (laughs) yep, let's make that happen. (laughs) big thumbs up. We all need a friend like that. I
1: know. (laughs) I know. She's amazing. And she's super type A and she's an engineer. And so she was able to sit down and go over my finances and just let me know if it was even going to work in the first place. (laughs) If you can find a place for this, then you can make this work for a year. And I needed that because I couldn't think about that part of it making sense of numbers that was not happening. And so she did that and she said, yeah, you can do this. If you can find a place for this. And I said, okay. So I did. I started looking right away. I found a place on the beach where I was familiar with. We had stayed there before. By the end of the week, I had signed a lease and I came back. And then I told my parents, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go down to, to Turks and Caicos for a year. And my dad said he, again, very supportive. I mean, he said, a year's a long time. He's like, why don't you go for six months? And I said, no, I need to be away. I need to be six months is going to go by like that. And I had, they had all these special occasions coming up and anniversary days coming up and things. I just did not want any reminders of my life before we had big 4th of July parties. We had big things that we used to do at our house and I didn't want to be there. I didn't want any reminders. I said, I just want to get through this next year unaware that that life is no longer an option for me.
0: Yeah. It gives you kind of time to, for life to move on without your life having to quite move on yet.
1: He said, maybe nobody knows how you feel right now. If you feel like you need to do this, then go ahead and do it. My mom didn't say a word. She started crying and then she stood up and she went and started scrubbing the kitchen counter. Just (laughs) didn't say a word. I have just such a vision in my mind of that. I don't know your mom, but I can picture it. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't say anything. She didn't try to talk me out of it. I can't believe she didn't try to talk me out of it, but so yeah, that was Thanksgiving, January 1st. I signed the lease January 1st to the end of December and Claire and I flew down there with four big giant suitcases packed to the 50 pounds, mostly toys. And this is the other part of the story that I tell is because I didn't have enough room in my bags for my clothes. So I ended up wearing 25 shirts to to fly down. (laughs) Literally had on 15 pairs of underwear at the same time. And then I had on 25 shirts, tank tops, tank top, because I couldn't fit it in my bag. So I just ended up wearing all my clothes on the way down. What a wonderful thing! Now, when you know
0: life has moved on, to be able to look back and just think about how ridiculous that is. I'm sure at the time it was just absolute necessity. You were completely in a daze. You were just like, I have to get all these clothes on. I'm just going to keep putting them on. But now, what a good part of this story! <laughs>
1: It was ridiculous. I looked ridiculous, but then I'm like, what are they going to say to me? I'm just wearing clothes. You know, I'm not doing anything wrong.
0: (laughs) And I said, I talked to people who've often made a choice around change. You didn't have a choice, but that was, that is a major choice. And it didn't last just a year.
1: No, we were supposed to stay a year. And then I decided I wasn't ready. I still wasn't ready to come home. So we stayed another year and then we stayed another almost year. But the incredible part about being down there, like I said, I didn't know a single person. I just went and I didn't care about knowing a single person either. That wasn't my point of going there. The whole point of going there was to heal and to just get some peace and Mm -hmm. quiet. And I felt everything in me was telling me, to be there and to give myself that time. And I feel so lucky that I was able to do that.
0: Logistically, because this trial date kept getting pushed around, how was that affecting your time
1: there? So the trial date, again, it was like it would be set for three months. It would always change. It just kept repeatedly getting pushed back. And so I never bought a plane ticket to fly home for a trial date ever. But being away, I felt like it was not in my face. It was in the back of my mind, but it was not part of my day to day there. It was like, that was just a separate life, a pause button kind of from the reality that was back home. And I just continued healing, continued living in the moment, continued just a lot of being in the day and spending that time with Claire, trying to figure out how to be a mom and do the parenting thing by myself and just wrapping my head around what had happened and processing all of my grief. What I did find down there also was because it's a British island. And so they had a little private school and I put, I was able to put Claire in this little private school two days a week. At first, it was just a three hours, like 9am to noon, but it was enough of a stretch just for me to get some time to myself. Mm To have that time, I had to schedule like when I could really be upset (laughs) and when I could really just cry and be in my grief and then pick her up. Not that she didn't see me crying a lot. And I would always tell her, I just, I miss daddy. I'm crying. I miss daddy. I never tried to hide any of that from her, but there were some really low moments and tough times. And I was able to do that while she was in the little school. And then also because she was in the little school, I was able to meet some of the moms and some of the other parents. And that just opened up this whole world of friendships. The expat community is very small. It's a Mm -hmm. small island to begin with. I think total 20,000 people. So the expat community is probably maybe a couple of thousand. I mean, not a lot. And these people that came into my life when I was there, it was like they were just sent by heaven. I can't explain it. They were angels. And I just made some of the best friends in the world. And they didn't know me for my life before. They knew me in this really low place that I was in, but they just, it was such a small, tight community of people, and everyone just took me in. It was amazing. It was amazing. It wasn't at all what I was looking for, but it was exactly what I needed.
0: Yeah. Cause I think yeah. sometimes people say their new life, but sometimes you really do need that new life where somebody's not comparing to how you were when you were part of a couple or you were half of a whole. You got to just be you and you in a not so great place.
1: Yeah and who I was trying to become. I had no idea what life was going to be and what my role was going to be in that. Where was I going to be? Am I going to stay here? Am I going to not move back to Louisiana? Do I? Where do I go from here? It's this big, wide open world, and there's not really a whole lot of direction, which gives you freedom that is in a good way, but it's also an overwhelming way too. <laughs> To have so many choices of what's next? What am I doing? Why did you decide to come back? I decided to come back because Claire was starting kindergarten. She was about to start kindergarten and I could have stayed. I could have stayed. But I felt like that was a good, distinct point in time for me to get back to reality. Not that could not have been a reality and stay there. But at the same time, It's very hard to get a work permit there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So if I was going to get back into my career, get back into optometry, that would have been extremely difficult to try and do that down there. I could have done it. It would have been a lot of hoops to jump through. And I felt like it was just time for me to make a decision that that time on the island was the pause button. Like I said, it was just like a holding pattern, (laughs) a holding time of okay, this happened. So what am I really doing now? What am I doing? And I just felt like it was the right time with her starting kindergarten to come back and try and get that figured out. Did it feel like fresh grief
0: to come back to what was before normal life?
1: It did. Yeah. It felt like that every time we would fly home and I would get back to New Orleans, we would land. And then we have to walk through the airport to get to baggage claim. And there's all the jazz music playing in the New Orleans airport. I had all these triggers for being here. And that was hard to get over. It, It was, there was a lot of, there was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of trauma involved in what happened. And I felt just, it's weird to say it, but I felt betrayed almost by, by my city. We chose to live here. He moved down here. We could have gone anywhere and we thought about living other places, but we decided to live in New Orleans and then that happened. It was hard for me to come back here. It really was. But I have so much family here and with it just being Claire and I, I just I wanted her to have those connections with the family and that was more important than my trauma. I told myself I need to work on working through this trauma in order to be here with my family.
0: And I mentioned at the beginning, I said, you tell me about when you started seeing your first husband. So obviously you've moved on into another relationship. You've moved on and done a lot of other things with your life, but how did you start moving on? Because you've had your holding pattern, You're back, there's triggers. There had to have been sort of a, here's the first steps, or here's what I did that finally started this healing in motion.
1: Yeah. It was a slow process. I sold my house that was very hard to do. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I was the same person that could go back into that house. I was a different person. And so selling my house was pretty huge. But also I knew it was, I knew it was the right thing to do. So there was that's a big step. But I ended up moving in with my parents, and my parents are just the best people in the world. And they, when I told them I'm gonna sell my house, we're coming back from Turks and Caicos. Can we just stay with you until I figure out where I want to be? We were at dinner. They got out of a napkin. They started drawing out plans because they have a three-car garage and they have the space above it. So they built out this little apartment (laughs) for us. I mean, we weren't going to stay a long time. I said, I'm not going to stay forever, but they're so great. My parents are just so great. Yeah. So we ended up staying with them. I put Claire in a little school. I was looking for houses. And they have this super cute neighborhood. This is where I live now, but this super cute neighborhood and all these old cottage homes. They're just really adorable and little two bedroom places. And a really good friend of mine, she said, "Dan, she's like, why are you going to buy a house for the life that you have now? She's buy a house for the life that you want, that you can envision for yourself. Because I had always wanted a bigger family. I had always wanted three kids or whatever, that picture in my head. And she said, don't back yourself into a corner and buy what is now look to the future. And that really hit me.
0: Was that kind of the first time that somebody had said something to you that made you go, oh yeah, hold on. I'm not in a holding pattern. There is life and there is a ways to look forward.
1: Yes. Yeah. great friends like, wow. very
0: friends i know right <laughs>
1: I'm so lucky i am lucky so i i put that on hold i did not buy the little two bedroom house i was still looking and still looking and then crazy fate things that happened my mom had been going through boxes i had two storage units packed with all of my stuff it was a mess so i had stuff everywhere my mom was going through some boxes and she found a box of bills it was old phone bills and electricity bills from my house that I had been sold. And she found this little letter and it said Jennifer, and it had a heart on the eye. And she said, this doesn't look like it goes in here. And I wasn't there when she was doing this. I was in Turks and Caicos, but we had come home and she had put that little letter on my dresser in our little apartment space. So I came home, this was a couple months later and I'm cleaning up and dusting and stuff. And I see this little letter and it says, Jennifer, with the heart on the eye. And so I open it up and it's this love letter. It's this five page love letter. And it said, I never believed in love at first sight, blah, blah, blah. And I'm reading it. And I said, oh my God, I remember getting this letter when I was a teenager. I remember reading this. What happened was when I was 15 and Doug was 16, there was a, youth conference, youth group, church thing that had happened over the course of a weekend. Doug had flown down from Michigan with his church people. And then my church group was there. We met on the first night of this youth conference in the Superdome. I remember spending the entire weekend with him, having a blast. We were just kids and having so much fun, totally innocent. and he had written me this letter when we were teenagers. So he had gotten on the plane back to Michigan. This was August of 1993, I think. And so he, he wrote me this love letter, sent me the letter. I remember reading it back then, but then, at the time, there was no cell phones. There was no internet. There was no anything <laughs> yeah. to call him would have been like $2 a minute. When you get call, <laughs> I didn't have a job. I'm like a teenager. I said, Michigan is the other side of the world. He was getting ready to go off to college. So I said, I am never going to see this guy again. So I didn't even, I didn't even write back to him. Fast forward 25 years. So I find this letter. My mom found the letter. It had been Packed away in a box of like my high school stuff. My house was in Katrina. So I had six feet of water in my house, but that (laughs) box was up in the attic somewhere. And so it survived all of these years, all the moves, all everything. It was in a storage unit, in a box of bills. My mom found it, put it on my dresser. I find it. And when I opened it up, so he had written, this is where I'm going to school. This is where I'm going to college. This is my home address. This is everything all about him. And at the bottom, he signed it. Doug Zwink. So he put his last name on there. If he had signed it, just Doug, I never would have found him. I finished reading the letter and I said, oh my gosh, somebody loves me. That's what I thought. (laughs) You needed that though. You
0: needed to know that somebody loved you.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Even if it was 20 years earlier, 25 years earlier. (laughs) I looked him up on Facebook. I found him. There was nothing about him. It, It didn't say anything about single, married, anything. It was like a picture of Michigan Stadium. And so I messaged him and I said, hey, just so you know, I have a love letter from you. (laughs) I said, you came to New Orleans when you were a teenager. Not sure if you remember, but this letter has survived through a lot. And I just thought you might want to know what your 16 year old self was thinking. He messaged me back right away. Like he was on Facebook and he said, I absolutely remember you, Jen. And I was like, whoa, okay. you remember that weekend. So we start chatting. He said, let me get your number. And I had no idea. I'm like, is he married? Is he not married? I literally remember I had typed out that whole thing about, uh, I've this love letter from you. I don't know if you remember. And I almost sent it. And my hand was like over the enter button. And I'm just like, do I send this? Do I not send it? And then I'm like, it's not like I'm going to marry the guy. And I just hit it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so a couple of months later after talking for a couple of months we decided to re-meet he was living in Chicago and so we met and we started a long distance dating and then and then we got engaged 10 months later and then we got married 10 months after that and then immediately got pregnant and had our little girl Penelope together 10 months after that so Worldwind second chapter. Yes. <laughs> <say that>. Exactly. <laughs> do you think I
0: don't know if this is even there's something about that the fact that it feels there was fate involved in things. But do you think it helped to move on with somebody that was kind of part of your past as opposed to oh I'm going to go on the dating scene or oh yeah. <laughs>
1: there was already that familiarity of, I know this guy and I remember him and he was a really sweet guy and genuine guy. And I, it was a church event, right? So I know he's a good guy. (laughs) I used to go to a lot of church events and I don't know if (laughs) I would take that back. But there was that part of it that was, it, it wasn't a complete and total stranger, even though we had only known each other for three days. That there must
0: be something, yeah, about the familiarity of not, and then not having to do the gross dating thing and just obviously you still (laughs) dated, but yeah, it's nice that it was in a different way and felt meant to be as opposed to having, in a way, having to make a decision. Obviously you had to hit that enter button, but you didn't have to say, I'm going to go on a dating app because I'm ready now. I know. That said, now you have Widow 180, which is your podcast and you do meetups. What do you call it? Widow squad. And one of the things you talk about is dating again. So I'm sure you encounter a lot of people that are coming to that decision. I'm going to go on a dating app or I am ready to start again. Yes. So tell me a little bit about all of that. The dating thing was a segue, but there's a lot involved with that.
1: Yes. So I started my podcast. In 2020, I think a lot of people did. I was late <laughs> to the podcast world. I didn't discover podcasts until 2018, maybe? maybe 2017, I think is when I first discovered them. And then and then I approached some friends. I have some widow friends, and I said, Let's do a podcast. So excited about it. And everybody was like, Yes, let's do a podcast. And then it was Getting back to your life and things get in the way and then time goes on. And three months later, we get together for dinner again. And I'm like, let's start a podcast. And everybody's like, yes, <laughs> this went on for a year. And I just kept saying, I want to do a podcast. I'm just going to do this podcast by myself. I bought my equipment in September of 2019 and did not do a single thing with anything until April of 2020. When we had some time on our hands, that was my catalyst to get started. I said, that's it. This is the timing of it. I got to do it. I'm going to do it. And I ended up interviewing all of those girls in my widow group that were supposed to do the podcast with me. (laughs) They were my first guests. And I didn't really have a plan for the podcast, but it was just to put these stories out because one of the biggest things that helped me in the beginning of widowhood was to meet someone who was just a few steps ahead of me. They are six months ahead or maybe a year ahead or even two years. And I'm looking at them and they're smiling and they're laughing. Some of them remarried, some of them just going back to school, like doing these amazing, incredible things. And I'm just like, how did she get there from here where I am feeling? How does she look like that right now? I need to know the steps. I need to hear the story. I need to hear what she did. How did she cope? What has she done? And so those were the type of stories that I wanted to put out. I have a lot of friends that have done that. They have started businesses. They have gone back to school. They've changed careers. They've just changed their outlook on their future. And they are jumping in to the deep end, just going for everything. And I'm just like, damn, that that is what I want to be. So those are the people that I interview and I love talking to them and I get inspired every time. And every time I do an interview, I feel like I have made a new best friend. (laughs) So it has just opened up all of these doors and friendships for me. And then I hear from people around the world that these stories are helping them. And oh my God, I'm just like, I have stumbled into this thing. Not really stumbled, but I just took it Slowly on. Slowly decided
0: and then <laughs> yes. eventually, boom, a slow stumble.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love it. I love it. So it's Widow 180 is the podcast, but then I also, I started doing some blog posts and then I had some people reaching out to me. And this is one of the, one of the biggest things that gets to me. I ask people, When they join my Facebook group, it's widow 180 community. If what is your biggest struggle right now? And I would say 90% of the time people struggle with loneliness. They say loneliness. I'm lonely. I can't get over this loneliness and it's just heartbreaking. And so I wanted to start a group. This is the widow squad. And of course it's virtual, but we are going to do our first retreat is coming up in May. And I'm super excited about our first in-person thing that we are doing. I wanted to start these groups where these widows could come and just, it's it's hard because you don't have your husband to complain to. It's also hard because you don't have your husband to share the good things, the wins. You get a promotion at work and you it's, that's the person you want to tell. And we have our little group that we can come in and we can share everything. And especially those stories and those widow struggles where you have certain things that trigger you or anniversary days that come up and they knock you back down. And then you have to pick yourself back up, but we are all here together. We are all doing this together. And, and so I just love, I love doing the group. Everybody's learning from everybody else. That's the other. Beautiful thing about it is when you come together, I'm always learning new things. I was going to ask you about keeping yourself entrenched in
0: this widow title when, you know, it has been nine, no, 12 years, but it seems it's a title, not that you proudly own, because that's just not the right expression for it, but it's one that you wear with pride that you've been able to move on and that you can help other people. So, I don't even think it's a question anymore because originally it was, does bringing it up all the time bring back pain, I guess, was the question.
1: Not so much. So much time has gone by for me. And when I see these other widows that are struggling and I know exactly how that feels and I just want them to know that pain is temporary and what they're going through is temporary. They just need that reassurance and they need someone to tell them and to show them, give them those examples of what's possible and that you you have a future to look forward to because you don't feel like it when you're in that moment when you're so deep in grief, you can't see past it. It's like having blinders on. And I don't find myself getting sucked back into that. I feel like I am the person just reaching out my hand and helping them stand back up. I don't get pulled back down. I guess that's a good way to put it. <laughs> No, it makes perfect sense.
0: And like I said, my using a divorced example is such a bad comparison, but it's not because I'm hearing what you're saying. And I remember having moments of like, no one has been through this as bad as me. No one has been so surprised by a sudden breakup. No one has been so hurt. But the more I did start reading, the more I started accepting that it was something that was final, first of all, I think was a big thing for me. But I did see there are people that have been through pretty much exactly my situation or close enough to it that I did find inspiration in seeing that someone was happy, that there were other people that had managed to move on. And I think in a way I talk about my pain that I felt pretty freely because I am glad that somebody else might hear that and go, Yeah. yeah, it is really painful. It is grief. I'm allowed to grieve. And then I'm allowed to also move on. And yeah. find happiness and have a second chapter and all of that.
1: Yes. The rest. Yes. So... Exactly. Same thing. Yes. Same thing. Yes. So, I think um... it's
0: definitely very inspirational. I when I think about 35, I mean it's not that far away. But yet I think, <laughs> God, it is, it's a very young age to have something that is so life changing, but also to have a young daughter. I mean, I'm just saying all this to you, you know this.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So completely on off topic, because we always do it on the second chapter. Did you bring a quote for me today? I
1: did. And this was a tough one just to pick one. So this is my top, but I have a lot more. And this was from Mark Twain. And he says, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And I live by that. I do. I tell people all the time. I tell these ladies all the time, find your Why? because everything feels different now. And there's so much power in finding your purpose, find your why. And that's, what's going to keep you going. That's what you can keep your eye on. And I hadn't heard
0: that one before. And all of the hairs on my head, just stand up hearing it because (laughs) it is, it's so true. I mean, I think, you know, you have a lot of whys in your life. You have your daughters and you have the fact that there was a pivotal moment in your life, but Really, I think Widow 180, the way you light up when you talk about it, you've
1: definitely found your why. I know. It's crazy. Who would have thought, you know, you just look back and it's, this is not the life that I thought I would be living. But I can say from the deepest part of my heart, I am so happy. I am so happy.
0: I'm so happy to have heard your story and to hear you say that. So thank you, Jen, for joining me and for sharing your story.
1: Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun talking to you. And hopefully I can be
0: one of your, I talk to them on a podcast, new best friends.
1: (laughs) Don't you feel that way sometimes? I mean, don't you feel that way too?
0: Yes, (laughs) I I love it. I love it. Like, yes, I feel that. Yes, it's true. (laughs) Thank you, new best friend. (laughs) Take care.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram and sign up for the second chapter newsletter. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.